from Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. I'd invite you to turn there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into content the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppression, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling's warriors in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. From the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that for to us a child is born. As we look at your scripture this morning, may it penetrate our hearts and our lives. May we glean from it the truths that you would have us understand and be applied to us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as it goes forth this morning that we would be changed forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we were in the book of Isaiah chapter 7, where we looked at the famous prophecy of the birth of Emmanuel to the virgin who will conceive and bring forth a son who would be the Lord Jesus. And today we turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9, and it's the same circumstances, the same situation that was being addressed in Isaiah chapter 7. When we first started this series, we started in Genesis chapter 3. We saw the wreckage of human sin and the misery that it brought but we also saw the proclamation of the first gospel and the first foretelling of a coming Savior. And so you had this, this disaster in sin, but you had a promise of hope. We looked at how the seed of the woman was going to win the victory, but it would cost him his life because the serpent was going to strike his heel. He was going to die. And so you have this backdrop of darkness and the promise of hope. And while we fast forward several thousand years to Isaiah chapter 7, like we looked at last week, and we see that a virgin's going to conceive and bear a son, and, and that promise has as its backdrop the promises that God had made to David. In 2 Samuel, God had told David that his line would be forever. However, the northern kingdom is in trouble. It had been overrun, and its kingship will come to an end, and soon the southern kingdom will be carried off into exile, and the line of David will end. This is what all latter prophets are faced with. How can God's promise to David possibly fail? Let me remind you of the context. The Assyrian Empire is threatening the whole region at this time. To the north, we have God's people divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdoms, Israel, has formed an alliance with Razan, the king of Syria, so they can protect themselves against the Syrian empire. 
The southern kingdom is Judah, with King David's heir as ruler is King Ahaz. He's been left alone. He's vulnerable. So in chapter 7 and all of chapter 8, we have this prediction of the fate of the first, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and how it will be eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. And the downfall of Ahaz for his unbelief and the dire circumstances that the southern kingdom will be faced with. In fact, chapter 8 makes it clear just how bad things are. Listen to the language that chapter 8 uses. It says, distress, hunger, rage, contempt of king and of God, darkness, and the gloom of anguish. That sounds pretty dire, don't you think? These are the very dark and dire days into which the prophet Isaiah is speaking this prophecy. Speaking the word of God. And yet, it is in this context, into the gloom of despair, that he comes with the word of the gospel of hope and the promise that a child will be born who will be known as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these seven verses from Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 some contrasts. And these contrasts are designed in such a way that they address the desperate situation that the, that the people find themselves in. And so what we see is that God is telling them that one day there's going to be this great reversal of all the gloom and all the grief and all the darkness and all the troubles one day will be overturned. And then in verses 4 through 6, we're told that, that why this happened. So, so the cause of the reversal is revealed in verses 4 through 6. And if you look at those verses, you'll notice that each one begins with the word for. And is capped off with verse 6 and the birth of this child. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. This child is a grounds and the basis for the reversal. The climax of this passage focuses our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see what He does and that He reigns. And we see how He does it through all the titles that are given to Him. I don't know how much thought you give to Christmas time. I don't know how much thought you give to the true meaning of Christmas. Or why we celebrate Christmas. As we read chapter 9, we may find it easy to forget all about chapter 8. In fact, look at the very last sentence of chapter 8. It says this, And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? They're going to be thrust into thick darkness. And chapter 9 opens up. And it's like everything is completely different. And the contrast is stunning. It's like when you go to bed at night and everything is dark and dreary outside and you wake up the next morning and you look out and the ground is covered in snow. It's a complete contrast. You went to bed, it's dark. You wake up, it's bright. And there's snow on the ground. That's what it's like going from chapter 8 to chapter 9. We'll spend the bulk of our time talking about this child that Isaiah speaks of. And we'll see how he offers blessing and renewal and redemption and new life. But before we do that, let's notice the dramatic reversal that is promised in verses 1 through 3. That we consider the results stemming from that first Christmas. So what I want us to see first is this. The remedy of the world's misery the remedy of the world's mis misery listen the people are in gloom they're in darkness much like today we're surrounded by gloom and darkness are we not the people are in a time of tremendous strife and what is going to be the answer to this and god's answer the remedy is this message of hope and to be honest it's surprising now the 
first thing we see in these first few verses when we're looking at the remedy to the world's misery is this, glory for gloom. Glory for gloom. Look at verse 1. Isaiah is saying, the glory comes in place of the gloom. Gloom will be a thing of the past and swallowed up by glory and it will begin, according to the verse, at the very spot where judgment first came. Assyria would have first struck Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee across the Jordan River. Yet these are the places where the latter glory will shine brightly. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, we are told that, that these very words are fulfilled in the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ahaz as king was a failure and brought judgment upon his people, but Jesus Christ, who is the final heir of David, was obedient and he was faithful, and through him blessing comes. Gloom can only be turned for glory through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a gloomy world. If you spend any time watching the news it's doom and gloom we're in trouble or if you just walk around with your eyes open it can certainly be a gloomy place we're surrounded by sin all the time we are constantly bombarded by the world and by our culture and by satan to give in to uh, to what is uh, the pressures of the world we're surrounded by darkness. It's just gloomy. And the answer for the gloom of the world, the answer for the gloom that we are surrounded with, is the glory of Jesus Christ. The only way gloom gets exchanged for glory is through Christ. But not only do we see glory for gloom, but we also see light for darkness. Look at verse 2. Notice the language in the comparison. The people walked in darkness, but now they've seen a great light. But not only did they walk in darkness, they dwelt in darkness. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness, and on them the light has shone. So twice darkness is brought up, and twice the answer to darkness is light. The verse is saying that these people's lives their very existence is one that is in darkness it's not just darkness as in you look outside and oh it's dark outside it is that but it's beyond that it's darkness within the meaning is ignorance distress misery and sin Let's also remember this is how chapter 8 ended, which I talked about earlier, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You look at all of this darkness, and what are we to do? What's anyone to do? Well, one day the sun will rise, and the shadows will flee, because one day the light of the world will break into the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. One day there will be a baby born in a manger and darkness will flee from the light and there will be light instead of darkness. And then the darkness of disaster will be overcome by the light of peace. The darkness of death will be overcome by the light of life. The darkness of ignorance will be overcome by the light of knowledge of Jesus Christ. The darkness of sin overcome by the light of salvation. That is the point. Salvation reverses the curse. Only a light which was the light of life, could dispel such deep darkness. And that light is a gift from God. It can't be produced by us. We can't make the light come. We can't, by our own efforts or from our own heart, make the light because we're trapped in darkness. We live in darkness. Our heart is dark. The whole work of Jesus Christ has to come into our life and bring light and all the blessing which he brings in the work in his life can be characterized by one simple word 
light. Light. He is the light. Thirdly, we have joy for anguish. Look at verse 3. He continues to give a description to this wonderful reversal where there will be joy. Look back up at verse 1. It says, there will be no gloom for her for who was in anguish. There was anguish. But then verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's celebration instead of sorrow. There is joy instead of anguish. Which will be what characterizes God's people when this great day arrives. This is exactly what the angel told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 when he announced the coming of Christ to the world. Do you remember the message? The message was this. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That, my friends, is the third Sunday of Advent. That's the third Sunday, joy. And so today we relight the first two candles of the Advent wreath, the candle of hope and the candle of peace. And now we relight the third candle of Advent. The candle of joy as a coming of Jesus, our Savior, draws nearer and nearer. Our joy builds with our anticipation of this birth. From the book of Isaiah, we read the words of our Lord, Isaiah 65, verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as joy and its people as a delight. Joy. Joy. I come to bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Please understand something about the joy that's described in these verses. It's extravagant joy. In fact, it's a kind of joy that comes at the harvest time or at the dividing of plunder. The time of harvest was a regular time of joy in Israel. After laboring in the fields, the people would gather to eat and drink and celebrate the completion of the harvest. The salvation of sinners produces extravagant joy in the hearts of God's people. And this is a gift from God and Israel's blessings were from God to rejoice in God is the highest form of rejoicing it is the only true form of a, of rejoicing man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and this only happens by a God-induced response to his mighty work of salvation in our lives let me ask you something this morning is your christian life characterized by extravagant joy. Jesus is the joy giver. And that's exactly what He said. He came to bring us joy. In John chapter 15 verse 11, listen to His words. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. One of the greatest evidences that Christ has entered into the life of someone is the presence of love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. These are all fruits of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is evidence that the Spirit of Christ is at work in the hearts of His people. So what I'm saying to you is it is impossible, impossible to be a joyless Christian. They don't mix. They don't go together. If you say, I have no joy as a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. It's impossible. And I'm not talking about feelings. I mean joy, true joy that comes from God because Christians have the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus came to give us joy. And it's not just joy at Christmas time. Oh, oh, I get this good feeling at Christmas time. So much joy because I get presents and all this stuff. That's not the point. He came to give you joy at all times. Do you know this joy as you examine your heart? This morning? Is there joy? Do you, do you know the hope of the light that shines into the darkness? Is your vision filled with glory or gloom? of this world do you know the true joy that only comes from him the unspeakable joy that is untouchable by the daily trials that we're faced with do you know anything about the realities these realities in your life do you really know god's joy now let's see this the source of blessing the source of blessing before we get into the details of the source of the blessing i want us to notice the reason for the source and we see part of this in verse four where the prophet says oppression will end specifically says the rod of the oppressor will be broken and look look down at verse five we have another reason for the source we see that war will cease all of the bloodstained implementations of war are going to be burnt up however neither of of those end oppression we have the end of war seems great but neither of those are the ultimate answer the ultimate answer is found by digging deeper how is it that war and oppression will end how, how does that take place? What is the true remedy for the world's misery? How can we possibly have glory for gloom and light for darkness and joy for anguish? How can any of this be? Well, if we search our own hearts to try to fulfill those things, we're going to be left wanting because we know that the answer is not in our heart. Where can any of this come from? And Isaiah gives the answer when he says, To us, a child is born. The answer revealed in verses 6 and 7. Look at them. He starts off with that. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Isaiah takes us to the nativity scene. There's great rejoicing among God's people because God has broken the yoke of burden and oppression. They are removed because the weapons and the garments of the warrior are destroyed. The basic reason for these blessings is this, a child is born. Imagine we're gathered around the manger looking together at the Christ child. Put yourself there and the prophet Isaiah is there. And he's quietly explaining to you why this baby makes all the difference in the world. He's explaining to you why we get glory and not gloom. Why we can get light and not darkness. Joy and not anguish. Why it is all because of this child that's born in the manger. And he's, he's about to launch into some details as to why. And he starts off with telling us this. What this child will accomplish Isaiah tells us that all of these blessings that we have are the result of what this child will accomplish 
we're told that he will reign. In fact, he will reign as God's universal king. What does it say? Verse states to us that the government will be on his shoulders. He's king and ruler. He's sovereign and his government is the kingdom of grace, but also the kingdom of nature and power. All of the world is subject to his rule, to the rule of this child. Now imagine this makes those feel or how those feel that heard the message of that day. The king that they knew was Ahaz. He was a failed king. But they're going to know a new king. This is great news for us too. Let me tell you why. Because we have leaders in our world that fail us all the time. It's just the, the fact of life. But Jesus' kingdom will never end. Jesus' kingdom will never crumble. Jesus' kingdom will never give way to some sort of military conquest. When this world shifts and the world gives way to hatred and the world gives way to violence and the world gives way to anger and all these kinds of things, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is immovable. And so when we read in verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We know it's true. The reign of Jesus Christ is not just some uh, indestructible reign, but it is an unstoppable reign. It cannot be stopped. And a triumphant reign. What we know is that this child will accomplish this reign. He will rule and reign forever. And we also see the triumph of Jesus Christ. On Thursday, some of you go through a revelation study with Mr. Bill Sexton. I'm not sure how far you are because I've not stepped in there for a little bit. Hopefully, he's not teaching some sort of crazy things, but, you know, I, I have confidence he's, he's doing all right. But, uh, there's one theme that's repeated throughout the book of Revelation. There's one theme that is repeated throughout the book. And that theme is this. The Lamb wins. The Lamb wins. The Lamb is triumphant. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when the angel Gabriel showed up and announces to Mary that she would be the virgin to conceive and bear a son, and he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Gabriel uses the language that is found in this passage to explain to her who her son would be. Listen to the language from Luke one thirty-two. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end listen church the kingdom of jesus christ is not a political kingdom the kingdom of jesus christ is not a military kingdom the kingdom of jesus christ is not sort of some sort of economic kingdom in its nature instead the kingdom of jesus christ is a spiritual kingdom it is one that is immovable it is unstoppable it brings glory not gloom it brings light not darkness it brings joy and not anguish and it is your kingdom if you have faith and you trust in jesus christ and you bow your knee to the greatest king of all this child who was born to reign moving on i want us to see this how it is that we Live in light of God's sovereignty. Living in light of God's sovereignty. Isaiah gives us much here. In fact, he gives us so much, it's, it's hard to, to get through it. We have all these great blessings. We have all these wonderful reversals that take place. But here's the thing. All of this does not take place or flow just from what he's done but it flows from who he is. Here's what I love about Isaiah 9. He uses a form of Hebrew um, writing where he's writing in the past tense. Have you gathered that? As, as He's writing as if everything that he's saying has already happened. 
And so the beauty of this is that he's writing, he's saying, hey, I'm writing this, but even though it's about the future, it's as you can take it to the bank. It's, it's as if it's already happened. So what is the answer to any crisis that any of God's people face? What is the answer for the king that is surrounded by nations that are ready to pounce? It is the certainty that a child will be born who will be king and deliver God's people. Isaiah is affirming that, that the one who is coming is not just going to have great titles, but, but will be exactly what these titles claim him to be. What had been a hope or a wild dream will certainly become a reality. The only hope of this world is the word of the Lord that has promised Emmanuel, God with us. The names given are not simply a description of what he does, but they are a description of who he is. So how do we have joy and not anguish? How do we have light and not darkness? glory and not gloom because jesus is god's wisdom for all our confusion he's god's answer to all of our questions he is god's truth in the midst of a world of speculation we can live in light of god's sovereignty because we know that these titles that are given to jesus christ are true of who he is not just what he does so let's look at these titles wonderful counselor we're told that he's wonderful counselor what exactly does that mean what it means at its heart is that he will be endowed with supernatural wisdom the word that's used here means um, of extraordinary nature and it and it is close as you can get in the hebrew to calling something supernatural. And the point that's being driven home is, is really a rather obvious point. The Messiah is not merely someone extraordinary, but is one who is in his very person and being a wonder. He is that which surpasses all human thought and power. He is God himself. To designate the child with the word wonderful is to make the the clearest attestation to the deity of Jesus Christ. It's saying it. He it's making it so clear that the one that comes is is not just uh, human, but he is God. King Ahaz, on the other hand. Well, we know he's not God. We also know that he trusts in human wisdom. In other words, Ahaz is not wise, nor is he wonderful, because he trusts in human wisdom, which will eventually prove to be a disaster for Israel. And so this child who will be born possesses heavenly wisdom. Isaiah repeatedly told Ahaz not to make an alliance with Assyria, and that God was going... um, to take care of the two kings that were to the north. But what did Ahaz do? Well, he, he refuses to listen to Isaiah because Ahaz trusted in human wisdom. I don't know if you've noticed, but human wisdom somehow has a way of making us think that we're smarter than God. Can you hear the words of Ahaz? Isaiah, what do you know? You're just a prophet. How could you possibly know anything about warfare? What do you know about politics? And what do you know about strategic alliances? Or what do you know about battle plans? I'm king. And you're not king. This is my business. I have to preserve my throne, Isaiah. And I I know what I'm doing. What happened to Ahaz in this trusting and human wisdom he lost his throne and the nation because of human wisdom because he refused to trust in God however this child that is going to be born is going to be wonderful counselor he's a 
wonder. He possesses spiritual wisdom. Upon him, the spirit of wisdom rests. A king must have wisdom in order to give counsel. This king will have no reason to be surrounded by counselors. He has no need of of counselors in his life. He has no need of advisors because he's not a human king. He is himself the counselor. He is God. This prophecy is similar to what we read in Jeremiah 23, 5, where it says, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. It's also similar to what Isaiah says about the servant who will come in Isaiah 53, 11. He says, By his knowledge he will justify many. What Isaiah is saying is that this wonderful counselor knows exactly what is needed in order for anybody to be saved. He knows exactly what sinners need. They need a Savior. And He is the Savior. He is the wonderful counselor. Not only is He wonderful counselor, but it says He is mighty God. Mighty God speaks to us of the omnipotence of divine power. The idea is that he will be God Almighty. God the warrior, the Almighty God in the flesh. John 1 1 speaks to this when it says of Jesus that he is the Word who is with God, who was God, and through him all things have been made that were made. John 1 18 calls him the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He is the God of omnipotent might and power. He doesn't back down. He does not say that that the child will be like a mighty God. That's not what he says. But he says he will be called mighty God. That is why John says he is God. Not that he is like God. Or that he is with God. Or that he is similar to God. But that he is God in the flesh. Jesus is the mighty God. And yet, what is perhaps the deepest mystery of the Christian faith. Is that mighty God came to us as a helpless baby. How do we wrap our mind around that? The omnipotent deity walked through the streets of Jerusalem and was betrayed with a kiss and he was nailed to a tree. The mighty God made flesh and on the cross the divine might appeared to be hidden. Jesus seems to be at his weakest point when he's crucified and torn and hung between two thieves. Tell me, how is that the display of the power of Almighty God? You see, that's one of the problems people have with Christianity. How could God... Almighty, It's not the problem with how does God allow suffering. Some people ask that question. That's easily explained away. But how can God, Almighty God, come and be killed between two thieves? How is that a display of the power and might of God? Because it is in the crucifixion that we see the power of God at work. Because it is through the crucifixion that Christ secures the redemption through his blood. That means now we get to sing and proclaim that our God is mighty to save. We know that he is all of the strength strength that we could possibly need in our weaknesses. He is our strength. In our frailty, He is our strength. In every trial, He is our strength. Jesus Christ is sufficient for us so that we can say to Him, when I am weak, then I am strong. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness and your grace is sufficient for me. Next we see this. That He is everlasting Father. Now, Admittedly, this can cause a problem for some people, mainly because he's called Father. Some people would say, well, I thought Jesus was the Son, not the Father. 
So this is an identification. Of, is this is this an identification of the Son, or is it just another name for the Father? Is this saying that the Son is just a manifestation of God, or another mode of God, meaning that the Father is one mode of God, or manifestation, and the Son is another mode or manifestation? No, that's not what it's saying. That would be heresy. It's what some people hold to that that uh, the Trinity is just different modes of God. He manifests himself as Son and then manifests himself as as the Father and manifests himself as the Holy Spirit, but they're not all separate. This passage is not confusing God the Father with the Messiah, but is instead attributing the rule of God to the Messiah. It is an attribution of the quality of the Messiah towards his people. He acts towards them like a father. In the Old Testament, kings were called fathers. They were spiritual and political fathers to the people. Even more, this title of everlasting father means that he will be the ruler of his people. He will be their eternal king, their endless monarch. It means that his reign will know no end. But it also means that he loves us with the love of a father for his precious children. He loves us with a love that can't be broken, with a love that will never let go. He loves us with an everlasting love, a love from which nothing in all of creation can separate us from. In Jesus Christ, the Father demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners in our hatred, in our rebellion towards God, that Jesus still died for us glory for gloom light for darkness joy for anguish he is wonderful counselor he is mighty god he is our strength and weakness he is our everlasting father he loves us when we are unlovely and in the ugliness of our sin and he is also prince of peace he's the one that's going to bring peace to his people What's the answer to the problems that the people face in this world? What is the answer to a wicked king and evil nations that are attacking? The answer is a child who is going to be the Prince of Peace. Micah says in Micah 5, verses 4 and 5, He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth this one will be our peace listen to what the new testament says Luke 2:14 glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men whom he's pleased Jesus himself said to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed in John 14:27 peace i leave with you my peace Give I unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Or even in Acts chapter 10 verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. Or how about Paul in the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Or how about Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. God reconciled all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him whether things on earth or things in heaven. I think you get the picture that he is the prince of peace. And that he brings peace to his people. How is it that we can pray for a peace that passes all understanding. And how is it that a Christian in the midst of chaos and despair and trouble and and all kinds of problems in their life, you tell me, how is it that a Christian can have a peace in the midst of all the garbage that they're faced with? Because he is the Prince of Peace. He gives peace. Do you know that peace? 
Do you know the peace that he gives in the midst of troubling? I can't imagine facing some of the things I've faced in this world without the peace that he gives. Without saying, I know who holds tomorrow in his hands. And I have peace. In fact, as a Christian, that's why we don't fear death. I could kill over right here and be at peace because I know it's ultimately for my good and His glory. Now, my wife might have some problems with it, but just saying, you can have peace. Do you know that peace? He is our peace. Don't you get it? You and I, if you know Christ, you were once hostile to God. You were alienated from God. But He made peace through the blood of His Son on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself so that in the gospel he says to us peace be with you Jesus gives us peace not as the world gives but he leaves us his peace so that our hearts don't need to be troubled you don't have to fret you don't have to be afraid you don't have to worry you don't have to say oh I wonder what's going to come next because he gives you peace Jesus is your prince of peace he keeps you secure and he accomplishes peace in your life finally the messiah will reign in righteousness verse 7 makes this clear to us that righteousness will characterize the reign of the messiah that's not the case right now but it is to come that is why christians pray thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reign of the Messiah will be perpetual and progressive. The blessings of an increase in government and of peace are connected with the one who sits on the throne of David. The one who sits on the throne is a legitimate descendant of David. It had earlier been promised that David's throne would endure forever. And that is why we have this description of the Messiah's reign here identified with David. It is striking that peace and government are mentioned together because how do most governments advance through war however unlike other kingdoms this kingdom will grow through peace it will grow through the gracious working of the Spirit of God in the hearts of the people through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prosperity of this kingdom isn't temporary, nor is it local, but it's eternal. Tyrants and dictators establish kingdoms by oppression and tyranny. This king will establish his kingdom through righteousness and government, and the people will joyfully obey a righteous rule there is justice because the king is just. You see, all the blessing flows to us because of the child who sits on the throne and only because of him. The kingdom of the Son continually progresses. And justice and righteousness are its foundation, and injustice and oppression have no part in his kingdom. And this is all accomplished by the zeal of the Lord. How will the kingdom be founded and who will bring it about? It's founded by the zeal of the Lord and the Lord brings it about. God has partiality towards his people and he has a jealous disposition to protect his divine honor and vindicate his divine purpose. Isaiah says the Lord will do this. He will accomplish this. This is the Messiah. He will reign in righteousness. You can take it to the bank. It is if it's already happened. This is exactly what will transpire and take place. There are a few things I want to say in closing. First this. 
We have light for darkness, joy for anguish, glory for gloom. And whatever trial we may go through, or whatever fear that may come our way and strike our hearts, and whatever we may face in Jesus, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding can guard our hearts and minds because he is the Prince of Peace. Look at who Jesus is. It is as if Isaiah is inviting us to to look into our hearts and see if there's any need that we have in our hearts for which Jesus Christ is not a suitable Savior. It is, it is, is there anything lacking in Christ? Is there any situation that's beyond His response? Is there any answer that He does not know? Jesus knows the deepest need of your heart. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a Savior He is. He is all-sufficient. He is able to save to the uttermost. There is nothing that lacks in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that misses, that is missing in Jesus. Your deepest longing is fulfilled by turning to Him. Isaiah is making it clear that the Israelites' hope has to be focused on the person of the child who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. I think it would be a shame to go through Christmas time and all of the beauty and all of the sentiment that's attached to Christmas and not believe the one who is our peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe Him. If you've never trusted in Jesus, do it now. Believe on the person of the Son because the focus of our faith is on the person of this child who is indeed wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But let me also draw your attention once again to the very last line of chapter 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What this is is an Old Testament way of saying this. The deliverance I'm going to bring, I'm going to do it. It's going to be my by my grace. Now, I personally think it's great that God doesn't say to His people, I want you to go out and do some things and perform some tasks and deliver yourself. Instead, He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do what's necessary for a Savior to be provided for you. It will be all me. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He says, I will bring this child into the world. You have nothing to do it. I do with it. I will bring uh, salvation to those whom I want to bring it to. It is not of you. Things are going to get worse for Israel before they get better. Israel would have to wait 600 years for this prophecy to be fulfilled. 600 years. But it was fulfilled. And for everyone who believes, there is joy. I love how the prophet Isaiah says this. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. It's as if he's holding out Christ to them for the taking. This one, who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is sufficient for your heart and your soul and your need and your pardon and your answers and your comfort and your hope and your heaven. He is for you. If only you come and bend your knee to Him upon His shoulders rests the government and His kingdom will never end. You are today invited to King Jesus to come and bend your knee to Him and find in Him that He is everything that your heart truly needs. Let's pray together.